This morning we come in our exposition of this epistle to the Hebrews to the opening of chapter 8 and we'll be considering together with the Lord's help verses 1 to 5. So our text this morning is Hebrews chapter 8 and verses 1 to 5. We've just read uh, that whole chapter together. And you'll notice in verse 5 it speaks with these words, who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things. What exactly is it that is distinctive about New Testament uh, corporate public worship? What is distinctive? Well, if we were to seek an answer to that by doing a survey and we were to go out into the streets and lanes of our city and nation and to begin to Consider what we would find uh, from church to church. Uh, you would look around and there would be all sorts of things that were heralded under the guise of Christendom. But it would, lef- it would, leave, us, um, it would leave us with great difficulty in identifying what exactly is distinctive about New Testament worship. You go to one place and then another, and there's tremendous diversity, right? You'll go to one and there's icons and pictures and crosses and symbols and candles and incense and processionals and elaborate robes and gowns and so on and so forth. You leave that church and go to another and it's, you'll discover high tech and a big rock band and sound effects and videos and flashing lights and smoke and so on. You leave that church and you go to another and you'll find people dressed somewhat simply and yet it'll be, uh, it'll include dancing and people weeping and, and speaking in strange tongues and claiming to prophesy and so on and so forth. And this goes on and on and on. If we continued, you'd go from one to the next to the next and each would be different from the other. And so what exactly is it that makes New Testament worship so distinctive? The answer, of course, is not found by a survey or a poll or investigating particular churches. The answer is found by turning our direction and attention to the Word of God, to hear what God the Lord shall speak, uh, to hear what He says and describes for us as distinctive. And while the Bible gives us, uh, we could say, a number of distinctives about New Testament worship, There is one that is overarching and one that is specifically emphasized and highlighted in our text here. It is the relationship between New Testament worship and the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as a consequence, uh, his relationship to all that had gone before in the Old Testament. And those connections leave us with this over whelming theme in the New Testament, that our worship is heavenly in the ultimate sense, in the truest sense, in the fullest sense. Our worship is transacted in the heavenly places uh, themselves. And so we'll unpack what this passage teaches us in defining what that exactly means. What does that look like? How are we to understand it? You'll notice how And what has preceded uh, these verses in chapter 8, we've seen that we have a new priesthood, 
a new order that the Lord has established, uh, that there is this priesthood after the order of Melchizedek, one that transcends and excels uh, the priesthood of, of Aaron. And we see the Lord Jesus Christ stepping into that office and doing so as one who is both simultaneously the great high priest and the great king, so that in his person both prophet, priest, and king are united uh, in him. We've seen that he, unlike any other, is a perfect high priest, flawless in, in his capacities and ministry stemming from his person. We've seen that he is a fitting, suitable high priest, that, that what we discover in all that is revealed to us of him and of his glory, that who he is and what he does matches precisely and specifically all of the needs that we have to the last detail, and that his ministry fulfills and supplies all that we lack. But we've also seen that it is a heavenly priesthood, that it is not earthy, it is not still groping amongst the dark shadows of Old Testament symbols and types, but this Lord Jesus Christ has ascended into the highest heavens at the right hand of the majesty on high, and that he carries out this ongoing work of priestly ministry in a heavenly sanctuary. And so as we turn to chapter 8, and really in what follows and flows into chapter 9, and even into the, the beginning of, of chapter 10, we have this extended comparison between what was given by divine prescription in the Old Testament regarding worship in the tabernacle and in the temple, its various components and parts, its people and offices, and we have that contrasted with its fulfillment, the antitype and the person and ministry of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. He who is our high priest, he who has entered into the heavenly sanctuary. And so it is at the beginning of chapter 8 that this theme is introduced, made prominent to us, that our high priest has entered into a distinctively heavenly sanctuary. We're going to note three things this morning uh, with the Lord's help as we seek to unpack this passage. First of all, we begin with the work of our priest. First of all, the work of our priest. Now, of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such a high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. And so here Christ is exalted. He is, he is the triumphant Lord. He is at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. You see again the fact that this priest is a king. He has ascended to a throne, verse 1 says, an eternal throne. But he's also a priest. He's a minister, we're told, a servant in the sanctuary. You know well that the world is willing to make room for the Lord Jesus Christ. There's never a protest in ancient times or in contemporary times from the world about making a place for Christ at the world's own, own table. But they'll only receive and have him. They'll only countenance him even in a limited capacity if he is after their own shaping, after their own image, if he is a reduced 
Christ. One who matches their ideas rather than determining their ideas as Lord. And so we find all sorts of things being spewed out about who Jesus is as a moral teacher and a guru and a murder and all sorts of other things that he's seen. People love to think of him as a helpless babe in a, a manger and there'll be all sorts of things about the fact that he's, yes, a man, but not God. Others saying, well, he's a God, but not the God or a type of God and not true man and all sorts of things that have been spun from the vain imaginations of men, all of which are untrue and all of which are consequently unsatisfying. Why? Because he that confesses not all of Christ confesses no Christ. A false Christ is not Christ at all. What is the Lord Jesus Christ doing? We're told that he is he is a minister, verse 2, a minister of the sanctuary. He is a servant. He is still serving. We know that he is the servant of the Lord, that he came to serve. We see him taking up the basin and the towel and washing the feet of his disciples. We see him serving those who are sick and possessed of devils, serving those who are ignorant in his teaching. We see him serving in all of his earthly ministry, but he is one who continues uh, to serve. He's serving his believing people as an intercessor, pleading and praying for them. He's serving as the one who, who rules and reigns over them, who instructs and speaks to them. In verse 3 it says, every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices. So that's part of the work of a priest. Wherefore, it is of necessity that this man have somewhat to offer as well. And so he is the one who has offered, as you well know, the ultimate sacrifice, the sacrifice of all sacrifices, the sacrifice to which every other sacrifice pointed, every lamb that was born and nurtured and fed and prepared and raised and ultimately sacrifice, slain, every last one of them, the countless tens, if not hundreds of thousands of them, those Pascal lambs all pointed forward to this priest who offers a sacrifice in offering himself for the sins of his people. Now Rome comes alongside and they look at this passage and others and they say, well, see, a priest has to be constantly offering a sacrifice. And so Rome insists and objects that if he's not a priest at all without a perpetual offering. And so they use this to kind of back their, their damnable doctrine of the mass and of the, the continual sacrifice, the fresh sacrifice of Jesus Christ in the mass. The answer is this, the passage tell us, tells us that the act of offering was necessary to be a priest. Full stop. We affirm that with all of our hearts. Just like childbearing is necessary to be a mother. But to be a mother does not mean always giving birth to a child. That was indispensable. In becoming a mother, 
but it is finished at some point. Now they enter into the blessings of motherhood and so on. And so with the Lord Jesus Christ. Here he comes and the the sacrifice is indispensable to his priesthood. But it is a once for all sacrifice for sin as we saw earlier in this book. It is a completed sacrifice. It is a final sacrifice. A sacrifice that cannot and will not ever be followed by another. Because in that sacrifice he secures perfectly and completely and comprehensively and efficaciously the salvation of his people. Having said that, he does continue his ministry. You know that he makes continual intercessions for his people. It's as priest, among other things, that he is praying for his people. Notice again in verse 3, for every priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices before the Lord, the offering is made with the shed blood and the benefits are available and continue to be available moment by moment to his people. The Levitical priest went into the holy place once a year on the Day of Atonement. All of the buildup and preparation for this, all of the anticipation year by year to stand but very briefly before the symbol of God's throne on earth and to plead on behalf of the people. By way of contrast, Christ enters into the real throne room, into what that Holy of Holies was only a shadowy picture of. Christ comes into the real throne room, not to stand briefly, but remains there forever, seated upon the throne which the ark was only a picture of. They're in the heavens themselves as the exalted Christ. And so for the Christian, this ministerial work of your your priest, your king, procures for you all that your soul desires, all that your soul lacks All that your soul stands in need of at its core, at its base, at its foundation. All that we need in terms of reconciliation with God, the forgiveness of our sins, a perfect record of of righteousness, nearness to him, fellowship with him, being recipients of his love and grace, the ability to hold communion with him and the union that comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. Here is the Lord Jesus, and he comes and says, your sin is your greatest misery. This is the burden that will crush you, that will obliterate you, that will sink you into hell itself. Your high priest has borne every last, of the, every last one of those sins away. And the believer stands in Christ before the throne, unlike Pilate, with guilty hands, dipped into a basin, unlike Lady Macbeth with her Arabian perfumes. No, he loved. He loved you, believer, and he has washed you from your sins in his own blood. And those continuing effects are secured in heaven so that as you come up into into the public worship of God this morning, Conscious of the sins committed this morning, conscious of the sins committed yesterday and this week, 
smitten in your conscience, humbled by the thought of it, the reality of it, feeling at times how far short you have fallen of the glory of God. The Lord says you have come up into a heavenly sanctuary with a heavenly priest who is able and willing to receive all who come to him by faith and to cleanse you from all of those sins, to purify your defiled consciences. And all of this is beyond the reach of this cynical world. It is secured in heaven. Christ appears in heaven for you. And what he has done can never be undone. What he has done, he has fully done and left nothing amiss. In our despondency at times, in our despair, in our discouragements, with ourselves, as well as with this sinful world and all that it, its entanglements and the assaults and the beatings that we take in the midst of it, in the midst of all of our miseries that come as a consequence of sin, all of our losses, our trials and our afflictions. We are crushed at times, de dejected at times, broken at times. The Lord comes to us this morning and he lifts up the chin. He directs the gaze away from the interior of our own souls, away from the immediate circumstances around us, away from this sin-cursed world that lies on the right hand and on the left. And the Lord Jesus Christ lifts our eyes to behold him, to see in him the one who is altogether glorious. He lifts our eyes beyond this world. Thanks be unto God for the Sabbath, a day set apart from all the other days. Thanks be unto God for public worship, set apart from everything else in this world where we are able to come up into the heavens and to have our hearts settled before him. Beyond our vacillating moods, beyond all of our broken circumstances, to see here is Christ praying for you. So that as I preach and you hear, Christ's petitions accompany every bit of it. Praise for you as you hear the word and receive the word. Praise for his believing people that that seed would take deep root and would have fruitfulness. Believer, it is your names that are being uttered in the throne room of heaven from the lips of the one who is prophet, priest, and king. And so your confidence is to be quickened and strengthened and invigorated because of the work of your great high priest, all that he is, all that he has done and is doing and will do. But that brings us secondly to the location of your priest. Now to emphasize this place, the, the location of the priest. You know the Jews, they were very, very concerned. They were concerned about the high priestly office itself. They were concerned about its ministry. They were concerned about the temple and the sanctuary that God had appointed. They were concerned, as you see later on in chapter 8, about the covenant. They're concerned about the sacrifices and all of these things. But here the Lord is coming and he's saying, all of that was a pointer. And now we have, been, we have set before us the true sanctuary. 
the heavenly sanctuary. This is the sphere of Christ's high priestly work. Where is he doing this stuff? Where is all of this unfolding? It is unfolding in our sanctuary, in heaven itself. And so we're given these Old Testament pictures of heaven. That's how we read them. We read the old in light of the new. We see the anticipation there that's fulfilled in all that has been secured in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we, we can open up our Old Testaments and we see these beautiful pictures of heaven given to the Old Testament saints, given still to us for our, our study. You'll notice in verse 5, these things had a divine origin, right? Speaking of the tabernacle in particular, there's a divine origin who serve under the example and shadow of heavenly things as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed thee in the mount. Right? This is a quotation from Exodus 25 and, and verse 40. We see the same thing when it comes to the temple. We read that in 1 Chronicles 29 for our Old Testament reading. You see it there, uh, or chapter 28, you see it there in a few places. In, oops, sorry, this is 2 Chronicles. In 1 Chronicles, chapter 28, we're told the same thing. David is given these things by the Spirit. It says all this that David the Lord made me understand in writing by his hand upon me, even all the works of this pattern. We see similar language elsewhere. I mean, you look at the ornate um, descriptions of the tabernacle and later on uh, the temple and you think to yourself, surely with all of the artistry, all of the intricacies of, of the design, surely much of this would have been left open to the creativity and ingenuity of man. And we're told repeatedly, no, not the least stroke, not the least detail. Nothing was left to the imagination of man. It was all given specifically by divine prescription. And so we have repeatedly in, in, in Leviticus, as the Lord commanded Moses, right? This is a refrain as it's describing all of the painstaking details of the tabernacle. As the Lord commanded Moses, you get the same thing when you come to the descriptions of, of the temple. And so it's given, there's a divine origin here. And this, of course, flows out of the second commandment. As you know, we're only to worship God as he's prescribed for us, as he's sanctioned, as he's commanded, as he's appointed. Only that is the worship that is, is warranted. This is the principle that God lays down for all time, in all ages, and in all places. And so all of those Old Testament ceremonies were by God's hand, just as all of the ordinances appointed in the New Testament are by God's hand. The inventions and additions of man's brain are idolatry in God's house. But you'll notice also in verse 5 that in the Old Testament, God made them as the copy, the example, the, the shadow of heavenly things. 
In verse in chapter nine, verse one, it speaks of what's earthly. Then verily the first covenant also had ordinances of divine service and a worldly or earthly sanctuary. So there's contrast that's being drawn. This Old Testament tabernacle temple was an earthly sanctuary, whereas the one into which Jesus has entered is a heavenly. The, the earthy was an example. It was a pattern. It was a copy. It was a picture of the heavenly ones to come. Christ ministers in the sanctuary that is the true tabernacle, as verse 2 says, made by God. Right, which the Lord pitched and not man. And so you go to the Old Testament, and there you have you have these you have these rooms, right? The the greatest of which is the holy of holies, the most holy place. This is the inner sanctum. What do you have there? I mean you have the golden uh, altar of incense there. Where incense is offered, it's a picture, Psalm 41 says, and Revelation 5 and 8 of the prayers of God's saints being uh, raised before the throne of the Lord. There's a veil. You have inside the veil a picture of the throne of God, what's described in the Bible, the ark, the throne of God. There's a mercy seat over that throne. There's angel angelic imagery that are hovering over that throne, right? All of this reflects what we see revealed to us of the true heavens. We even in places like Isaiah. In Isaiah 6. Or you come to Revelation. And the, the pictures that are given to us in, of, of heaven. They correspond to what you see. In these Old Testament imagery. It was graphic. It was vivid. It was engaging uh, the senses. In order to portray something that was far more glorious. Far greater. The real thing. The thing that was in heaven itself. Later on in chapter 9, you're going to have a kind of a catalog of some of the treasures of the past. They're majestic. They're attractive. They're, they have an earthly glory. They have beauty to them. They, they bring with them a wow factor. We can look through them. They're an Old Testament picture book. But they're not the substance. They're a shadow. They point to the real. You can imagine the Old Testament saints, the excitement of a family, a family in Israel. As one of the days, the feast days approaches, all the preparation in the weeks that, that, that precede it, the discussions, the planning, all that takes place, right? They're going, they tell the children, we're going to meet Jehovah. We're going to the house of God on earth to meet Jehovah. They prepare to go to the holy city there's an uphill climb. Eventually they come over, you know, perhaps a knoll and they can say, look, children, there it is. And in the midst of it, latterly, there's the temple and it's gold and the sun beating, the Middle Eastern sun beating down upon it, illuminating, causing it to shine like a little ball of sun upon the top of, of Zion. Children would have said, wow. They approach the high walls, they enter the gates, they come to the temple, and it's glorious, right? They gather in that holy convocation, and there they are pressing and maneuvering in order to be, to be able to see the priest comes. They look upon him decked in this glorious apparel, right? They can smell the, 
the anointing oil coming off of them. There's noise, the, the sounds of instruments and Levitical choirs. And there's the bringing in and slaying of animals before them. And all of the details that were involved in that ordinance. The smell of the incense. The smell of the, the animals. The meat that is, that is, that is cooking upon the, the altar. They hear about the descriptions of what can be seen inside and so on. And you can appreciate the impression that's made upon them. And yet the believing Israelite had been told in the law of God that this was to be a springboard to send their thoughts to higher things. Not merely gluing their gaze on the Pascal lamb or any of these oxen and other animals that were being sacrificed, but to see through that. The one who is to come, the Messiah, the true lamb who would redeem his people. To see in all of the glory of the temple rituals, uh, a small and faint picture of the far more glorious reality of the inheritance of heaven that yet awaited them. How they would have recounted these events on the way home, the privileges given to them. And yet in all of this, these are copies of heaven. They're copies. They're foreshadows. And we're being told in the book of Hebrews, now the Lord Jesus Christ has entered into the real, the infinitely greater. He's gone into the heavens itself and that we ourselves are brought with him into that eternal throne room and that we have the glory of Christ set before us in this heavenly sanctuary. We have the fullness of the Holy Spirit poured out upon us in this glorious sanctuary. Our prayers are now raised, but they're perfumed with the, in, with the intersections of Jesus Christ himself. If you think the Old Testament worship was glorious, how much more is the New Testament worship glorious? How far does it excel? It's incomparable. A house built of sticks and stones with mere gold and silver and earthly fabrics and men. How is that to be compared with a heavenly sanctuary where the presence of God fills its atmosphere? Where the glory of God is all that is seen? Where Christ himself is exalted? What can compare to this? And so all of the old is abrogated. It's laid aside. It's accomplished its work. It's done its job. It's pointed to what we now have in the real temple and worship of God. Jesus foretold of it with the woman at the well in John 4. Hebrews 8 to 10 reaffirms this in detail. Paul constantly warns about it to the Colossians and Galatians and Ephesians. And so on. Don't go back to those beggarly elements. We have the true. And then the Lord in providence brings the hammer in 70 AD. And destroys that Old Testament temple. Removing it forever. It was temporary. It was a pale reflection of the reality. The reality is that of a heavenly sanctuary. What is distinctive about New Testament worship? It's the fact that it is transacted in heaven itself. What a major shift in directing our attention to a heavenly orientation. Where do our eyes fall now? 
Our eyes don't fall upon a mere man who needed to offer a sacrifice for his own sins and then for others. Our eyes are lifted up to our priest who is in heaven, whom we behold by faith. Our eyes are upon a sanctuary that is in heaven. That's the New Testament sanctuary. It's not this auditorium. You know, I was told growing up, Robbie, don't run in the sanctuary. And I, I appreciate the sentiment, right? But the language was misguided. Our sanctuary is not found in a room like this. Our sanctuary is found in heaven. There's a focus on the glory of heavenly sanctuary. It is because heaven is the centerpiece with the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and the fullness of the Holy Spirit that New Testament worship is conducted in such simplicity and purity. This is why. No outward decorations. We don't have pomp and circumstance and crosses and icons and outward glory and robes and smells and bells and all of the other papist nonsense. Because that would pull us in the exact opposite direction of New Testament worship. It's a distraction from the heavenly. It makes it earthly. Earth-focused, earth-centered. When our eyes in New Testament worship are pulled upward to seeing the unseen. You go to the Grand Canyon. I've used a similar illustration, I'm sure, in the past. You go to the Grand Canyon. You've never been. You've heard about it. You've seen pictures of it. You finally get there. And you can't wait to get out of the car and to go and behold the Grand Canyon. Someone intercepts you. And they say, forget that. Don't do that. Look, look, I got this picture and that picture. And look at this beautiful picture. And so on. You push that person out of the way. I want to stand at the edge of the Grand Canyon. We don't want to return to the pattern of the Old Testament temple. One, because it's forbidden. It's a sin. God has prescribed New Testament ordinances and he's prescribed the abrogation of the old. But also because it is a distraction shielding us from reality. People may say of Presbyterian worship that it is bare and bold and simple and unornate and so on. But my friends, it is the most glorious of all. The fullness of the Spirit, the presence of Christ, all transacted in heaven itself. People say, come with us and look at our glorious worship, beautiful worship. And our answer is no. And the reason is because it is too scanty. Your worship is too paltry for what the Lord has, has, has provided for us. When we come up to the public worship of God, we're going into the heavenly places to behold the glory of Christ in the fullness and power of the Holy Spirit. And that is more beautiful than all your sticks of candles and sweet incense and cloth fabric. Get that out of the way. We came to see him. This is the problem, isn't it? People seek a remedy for dead worship in all the wrong places. They say our worship's dead, so we need a rock band to change that. Our worship's dead, so we need to ape Rome 
and bring in all sorts of liturgical nonsense and so on. But the remedy for, for dead worship is not to add to what God has prescribed. The deadness is in ourselves, not in his ordinances. It is we who must change. It is not God who must change what he has ordained. Our hearts need to be enlivened to the things of God. Repentance and faith and seeking communion with Christ needs to be accentuated. And then with that, a better appreciation and making use of what God has provided for us so that we can see what he has given to us in giving to us his son. We can say, I think truly, for those who know the Lord and who have seen, have caught a sight of the glory of Christ, who have, have a taste of the, the, the wonder of, 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 of New Testament worship, of, of what it means for there to be heavenly transactions. At the end of the day, we can say to ourselves and others, if you have tasted the real thing, you would have no appetite for the foreshadows. If we've tasted the real thing, the shadows, the picture books will never suffice. The simplicity of New Testament forms of worship, the absence of outward pomp and aesthetic exhibition speaks volumes. It speaks volumes because we participate not in symbols, but in realities, the realities of heaven when we worship. The New Testament regards these shadows as a restraint in our bold approach to God. And so we are led to, we're led to appreciate the liberty that's given to us in New Testament worship to cherish the liberty from the, the old mosaic ceremonial institutions. Why do we appreciate it? Because Christ shed his blood to acquire it for you. Jesus died to secure it for you. Which is to say that to go back to these Old Testament shadows is to trample underfoot the blood of Jesus Christ. And to say, it's as if he hasn't died. We're going to act as if he hasn't come and died. Well, with an end to the physical center of Old Testament worship comes this radical new focus on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It emphasizes the spiritual rather than the external because all the focus is on the glory of the person of Jesus Christ. Our problem is that we have not seen as we ought to have seen his glory. Our problem is that we have not tasted as we ought to taste that the Lord is good. Our problem is that our hearts have not been ravished as they ought to be ravished by nearness to him and fellowship with him and taking in all of the glories of heavenly realities. No, there aren't all of these other things any longer. The religious props, and 
calendars and choirs and candles. We're not Anglican. We're not Lutheran. We're not Roman Catholic. And we're not those who like, who seek to be like them. None of that stuff. The reason is because of the radical and biblical truths that the Lord has given to us about the spirituality of New Testament worship. You know that the Old Testament was primarily a come and see religion. You had to go to the house of God in Jerusalem on Mount Zion. Queen of Sheba had to come from far to see it. People like Rahab and Ruth and others had to come from far to have contact with it. That's not true in the New Testament. The New Testament's not a come and see religion. It's a go and tell religion. We take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And wherever the gospel comes, accompanied by the Holy Spirit, and sinners are converted, and worship is set up, there we find heaven on earth. We find those on earth who are brought into the heavenlies. This is to be carried to every people and inculcated into every nation. And isn't it interesting that the Lord's ordinances are so suitable for that missionary enterprise? If you really think that New Testament worship requires all of the Romish truckload of liturgical apparatus, or the contemporary rock bands and all of the machinery that they have. Picture that. Trying to take the gospel into the far reaches of the earth, where you have two Mack trucks being towed on the Amazon in order to get into a remote jungle, in order to hold worship. Prima facie, it's nonsense. The New Testament church is designed like the Apostle Paul to be able to take a book in hand and to go to the ends of the earth. And with that book, to be able to preach the gospel and the whole counsel of God and to conduct worship with nothing else. That book supplies everything and it is very portable. This is the picture that the Lord gives us of New Testament worship. We have a heavenly sanctuary. And so the implications are obvious. Do we build our anticipation? You know, when you, on Saturday, you're preparing for the Lord's Day. With what mindset do we prepare for the Sabbath day? When we roll out of bed on Sabbath morning, what kind of anticipation do we seek to cultivate? When we speak to our children, are we thinking in terms of children? We are going up to Mount Zion today. We're going up to Mount Zion. We're going to meet with the living and true God. Because the Lord Jesus Christ, through his sacrifice and death, and his ascension as our high priest, has entered into the heaven. He's thrown open the gates for us. And so we're going to go <clears throat> up into public worship in order that we might enter, as it were, into those courts of heaven and by faith to behold the glory of our priest, which is far excels the glory of any other, and with the angels to fall down and to worship him, to adore him, to hear his word brought home to our hearts, to call upon his great name. 
when we come up to public worship, are your thoughts on the Lord Jesus Christ? Are we thinking in terms of Christ is standing in our midst? Right, That's the picture where two or three are gathered together in his name. Christ is in the midst. We saw it in, Psalm, uh, in, in Hebrews chapter 2, quoting from, uh, from, from the Psalms, from Psalm 22. Jesus stands and sings in the midst of his own congregation among his brethren. This is the Lord. He is walking in the midst of the candlesticks of his people. So are our thoughts about Christ in the midst of his people? Do we come to public worship chiefly to hear him and to see him? And what is it that you would trade for that? When the thought is, well, I could go to church or, or not. And of course, in saying or not, you're choosing to do something else. You're choosing to be somewhere else. What would you trade when given an opportunity for the audience of the king? Pray tell. What would you trade for an audience with the king of glory? The opportunity to hear him and to see him and to be with him. To be able to come and be transported as it were into the heavens themselves. That ought to convict you. It ought to strike your conscience when you so easily trade this privilege for what is poultry. You are in the heavens. That means you need your heart in the heavens. In all of your preparations, in your prayer for the worship of God, in your prayer for the preaching of God's word, in the way in which you conduct yourself in public worship, with reverence, with faith, with the exercise of the soul, with your engagement of your heart, with joy, genuine depths of joy in him. Not allowing the mind to drift when standing before the throne, but riveting it where the Lord has placed it. The implications are that we are given opportunity for communion with the living God in the public worship and ordinances he has appointed. We are given bold access, liberty and freedom of access without all of the temporary burdens of that ceremonial system. We've been liberated from that. We're able to come now with 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 liberty and boldness into his presence. And the Spirit's presence is promised so that the Spirit comes and accompanying each divinely, each divinely appointed ordinance, powerfully present to work through those ordinances, to work in us under those ordinances, to take the things of Christ and show them to us, to magnify the Son before our eyes, to cause his fruit, including joy, to be born in our hearts at the sight of Jesus Christ. Can you see how this changes everything? This changes everything. Understanding Christ's priestly ministry, understanding his ascension to the throne, understanding the fact that we have in the New Testament a heavenly sanctuary, which is the central orientation of the church in this world. 
so that the public worship of God is the pivotal force in framing the piety of God's people. It changes everything. We're left saying glory, glory, glory be unto the Lamb who is seated upon the throne. All glory and honor and majesty and power be unto him. O Lord, cover every other type of glory. Remove every other type of glory. Cast every other glory into the dustbin. And grant that Christ would have all the preeminence among us. Exalt him before us. Cause him to be high and lifted up. And so you come to places like Revelation 4 where, Paul, where, where John is beckoned to come up. And to see the things which will be revealed to him. At the end of that chapter, he sees these beasts and he sees all that's happening. But he also hears, he hears them saying, Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And we're told that they fall down before this throne in the midst of which we gather this morning. They fall down and they say, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. This, my friends, is a heavenly sanctuary. Let's stand for prayer. Almighty God in heaven, the great and glorious God, who is high and lifted up above the highest heavens, who must indeed condescend to look upon the highest heavens, how much more the earth which is a mere footstool. And yet in the infinite riches of divine grace, the eternal Son has been sent as the incarnate Word, to take we who are the lowest of the low, to snatch us as brands from the fires of hell, and to lift us up into the highest heavens by the glory of the gospel. O Lord, may all praise and honor be unto thy name. For the glory of this heavenly sanctuary, enable us, O Lord, to see it, to taste it, to enter into its reality and to give the praise that is due to thy name. For we ask it all for Jesus' sake. Amen.